Welcome to the Attentive Heart Podcast, where we explore how an integration of mind, body, and spirit make us whole and enable us to become more compassionate to ourselves and to others. I'm your host, John Grabovich. Today, my guest is my friend, Martha. So, uh, Martha, uh, feel free to tell us about your background, a little bit about who you are, and what occupies most of your time these days. Thank you so much, John. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Yeah, um, great seeing you. My name's Martha Hennessy. I'm about to turn 68 years old on uh, the Feast of St. Benedict, July 11th. Um, I've been part of the Catholic Worker Movement um, all my life through Dorothy, uh, Tamar's mother, my mother's mother. And I worked, uh, raised three kids. I'm number seven of nine children and raised three kids myself, my husband and I. And now we have 10 grandkids. And I worked as an occupational therapist for many years, working mostly with children with learning differences and also um, the elderly. And what I do these days is um, when I'm not volunteering at uh, Mary House Catholic Worker in New York City, where Dorothy lived and died, I am here in Vermont. And here in the summertime, it's mostly about gardening and taking care of grandkids. And we have a five-year-old grandchild here who is um, diagnosed with aplastic anemia. So I've been helping out a lot here and mm. not spending too much time down in New York City. Mm -hmm. Well, you definitely have your your hands filled as, as, as I can imagine. Um, so we're, we're talking here about Dorothy Day for people who don't know um, who we're talking about when you mentioned Dorothy. And uh, as maybe you may know, uh, who are listening to this, or maybe you don't know, um, Dorothy Day is someone who's being considered to be a canonized saint in the Catholic Church. Uh, and it's kind of interesting, uh, of course, that you have a unique perspective on, on, your, on, on Dorothy. And um, maybe, like, how does it feel, just to maybe to begin this with, how does it feel to be related to let's just say a potential saint. I'm going to say that she is a saint. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that she is completely um, embracing all the goodness of, of, of the heavenly realm, so to speak, right? And, and is definitely helping all of us here on, on earth. But what's that been like for you? I mean, to always have, you know, right after your name, comma, granddaughter of Dorothy Day. I mean, does that, is there a weight that you have to feel like you have to carry? Do you feel like you have to act a certain way, be a certain way. What's that all like? Yeah, it's it's not easy. Um, so as a child, um, it wasn't a big deal. You know, she was granny. She was a very ordinary granny, even though we all were aware that she was an extraordinary person. Mm -hmm. And then when I was a teenager, um, you know, she was a great influence on my life, on all of our lives. You know, she, she handed me books. She... Uh, wrote me beautiful cards. Um, she had a great influence on me. And, you know, in my teenage years, our family was in the middle of leaving the Catholic Church, and that certainly uh, broke her heart. So all of those things um, have come to play now in my adult life. And I just kind of hid out for 25 years. I was raising my family. And I mean, I understood 
the, the legacy uh, and you know we loved we've always loved the catholic worker movement and community um, but i did not get re-engaged until i hit around age 50 and our uh, youngest kid went off to college and i had to really re-examine my baptism and i do think that dorothy played a hand in all of that um you know the planting of seeds in my lifetime and then me having to go through a process of trying to understand um you know who she was as a teenager i was uncomfortable with her um, religiosity and her piety i didn't fully understand it mm -hmm. um so you know it, it it comes with a burden but you know i often get um these two extreme responses uh, you know number one who's dorothy day you mean doris day <laughs> and then the other response is one of you know absolute reverence and awe and you know i can i can i can get um both vilified and glorified and i don't deserve either one of those things but mm -hmm. um, <laughs> our our culture tends to do that sure sure um, so i don't know it's been it's been a, a, an amazing journey and a, a very blessed one well, you know, one thing I'm I'm really interested in hearing about is a little bit of your relationship with the Catholic Church. I mean, clearly you mentioned how you grew up, especially in the context of Dorothy, to have a, a full exposure to what the church is and what the church is about. Maybe you could say it was a unique version of it because Dorothy was unique. Uh, but you, as you mentioned, you were leaving the church. So is there a way that you can walk us through through that, at least maybe that portion of your life, and and maybe we can just walk up to where we are now with that? Because I, I think, uh, speaking for myself, you know, we always don't we always don't have the most positive relationship with the church, um, and I think it's probably important to define what we mean by the church too when we say that. And, and I mm -hmm. usually kind of say um, it's those who seem to, um, whether rightly or wrongly. Um, want to create the narrative of what the church is and how the church should function and i think whoever those people may be whether they're bishops or priests or just somehow representatives of the church it's their attitude the way they express things and maybe even their behavior which at times over the course of my life has well quite frankly just infuriated me so yeah. What is that? what's that experience been like for you when you talk about the church what who is the church when you say that you're that you're leaving the church or that you're struggling with the church or well 98 percent of the church is the laity let's not forget that and yes um the the clerical um, power structure is pretty odious um and i i do feel like i've been caught between my mother tomar's uh, leaving the church and my grandmother uh, dorothy's conversion as an adult and, and, and an intense uh, devotion to the church you know from her from her age of her 30s until till until her death um so that's a that's a tough thing um i was certainly raised catholic and then i chose to leave the church and then i chose to return to the church as an adult and i feel like i've benefited um, from both worlds uh, from all of those experiences from on the part of my mother, you know, she was raised Catholic and got married at age 18 
um, to someone who really could not take care of a family. They proceeded to have nine children. So Tamar actually retained the best of her Catholic upbringing in terms of love one another and the golden rule and um, just really uh, practicing loving kindness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she struggled with all of the rotten parts of the institution and she ultimately just walked away from it. Mm-hmm. Probably mm-hmm. mostly because when her marriage failed, uh, you know, the Catholic Church dictated certain things and then nobody was there to raise these nine kids. Um, I was raised on welfare. Mm-hmm. And and here we have Dorothy saying, you know, don't rely on the state, um, take care of one another. Um, so I had to work my way through all kinds of um idiosyncrasies and contradictions um, about the message to the church with regards to women and children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Dorothy spent her lifetime caring for the most vulnerable. And that's the most powerful message that we can uh, receive from Jesus. Um, that was the example he gave us. That's what the, the gospel teachings bring us. And that's how we are to practice them. And so I, I'm very grateful that I was able to tease through all of this. But, you know, on the other hand, God grabs us, whether we're ready or not. And and God puts us in these places where we can respond. Um, we can say yes, or we can retreat. And I'm just uh, grateful that I was able to um, see what I saw and respond uh, to this return to my baptism. Sure. So when you say that Dorothy was devoted to the church, I mean, how do you understand that? Because I mean, clearly some people say, well, she was very critical of like bishops and priests and how they would live their lives and, and was very frustrated with uh, especially church leadership when it came to issues of nuclear war or just war in general, or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that there was a certain type of complacency that they had with the, with the American way of life, with, with capitalism unbridled, if, if anything. I mean, like, uh, that, you know, she was hypercritical of the church's uh, either positions or their silence on things. So, so how would you understand her devotion to the church? Um, yeah, I, I had to sort that out too. I mean, mm. I, I threw out the baby with the bathwater when I left the church. And um, when we come back into it as adults, um, we're much more prepared and you know, the, I, I just want to um, cite this, another annoying article by written by a man about mm-hmm. Dorothy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called The Stumbling Block on the Cause for Dorothy Day's Canonization by Matthew Walther, editor mm-hmm. of The Lamp. Yeah, I just read this. Yeah, and in, and in this, you know, he says something about... Um, But to return to the question of her canonization, it's worth mentioning that at least some of Day's own admirers seem to be opposed to it. They blanch at the very idea of her being recognized by some sinister caricature they refer to as church authorities, even though she herself was very strident. You know, those those words, very strident Mm -hmm. about the question of obedience to the hierarchy. She wasn't obedient to the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I don't, this guy slanders Dorothy as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, in her mind, it wasn't about obedience to the hierarchy. She recognized all the shortcomings of these men in power. Mm-hmm. Um, her obedience 
was to the true teachings of Christ. And yeah. she tried she tried to hold the U.S. Catholic Church accountable and responsible to um, staying truthful and 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 not betray the, those teachings of Christ. You know, living in poverty, living in the margins, caring for the most vulnerable in the margins of our capitalist system. Right. So she was obedient to Jesus, and the Catholic Church frequently messes up. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I, it's so understandable when um, you feel as if uh, the official interpreter, let's say, of Jesus' teaching comes through the mouths of uh, men who are bishops and priests. I mean, that's terribly frustrating. But I, I, I would imagine that there are probably more people who like listening or feel drawn, let's say, to listening to the, the teachings of Christ that come through the mouth and the pen of, of Dorothy, you know? And, yeah. and I mean, do you in your travels and especially in a time where i think so many people have been disillusioned with the church and its handling of scandals and and whatnot um how do you see dorothy playing a role in enabling people maybe to give let's just say i don't i don't want to say give the church a, another chance but at least give uh christianity another chance to give jesus another chance i mean do, do you see that happening i mean because i know that she could also just be i guess um interpreted as just as a, a social activist but i mean i think you would say that it was her radical dependency on on, on this relationship with with christ that really mm -hmm. activated her so i mean do you, do you feel that people be more open to what that relationship looks like with christ because of what dorothy says and even how she writes with a critical through a critical lens of, of say, church mm -hmm. leadership? Absolutely. Dorothy was a mm -hmm. personalist. Mm -hmm. Jesus was a personalist. He went to the, the fishermen and said, come follow me, you know, on a very personal uh, basis. And, and Dorothy very much did that as well. Um, I just want to read from All is Grace, which I think is a beautiful uh, tribute to her spiritual journeys. The best thing to do in the cause of our redemption and real freedom is to read the scriptures, then read what the canonized saints have to say. And I support her in this canonization. I, I do consider her a saint and I do mm -hmm. consider her capacity to rejuvenate, revive, reform the church, to, you know, to have a saint like that um, in, in the 21st century is is something that will bring people back to the church and in all of my experience of um, working at the worker and giving talks around the country but so many people have said it's the catholic worker and it's dorothy and peter's program that has helped them to keep one foot in the catholic church right so you know what a blessing what a blessing to have a woman like this you know, show us the way, give us an example of what it means to be a true disciple of Christ in the 20th, 21st century. Yeah. I mean, do you see um, new communities emerging, you know, inspired by Dorothy and Peter? Where, where do you see, like, let's just say a, a renewal interest happening? Well, I think there are new houses opening that can be kind of extreme from each other. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the Catholic worker movement, I believe it's longevity. We're in our 90th year. Longevity can be attributed to tolerance and diversity. 
and uh, there are new houses opening where people are quite Catholic and conservative and, you know, they do misconstrue mm-hmm. what Dorothy's actual practice was and her understanding of orthodox. And then we have folks who are not even Catholic. Sure. And yet they seem to be enticed um, by the principles, the underpinnings um, of the movement. Um, so we have examples all over the map of um, why people come to the movement and why they want to call themselves a Catholic worker house. Um, and nobody's the big boss. It is an anarchist movement. We've lost our charismatic leader. It's mm-hmm. up to us to, um, you know, carry on together. Uh, to work together. And the bottom line for me is, are you doing the work to alleviate the pain and suffering in the world? And, you know, the basic tenets of personalism, voluntary poverty, nonviolence, non-acceptance of war, non-acceptance of a war economy. I mean, those are all the underpinnings that come from the teachings of Christ, I believe. Sure. Sure. I mean, I've always have found it very difficult uh, to find people, let's say, who are, who are in some way, sh- shape, or form, well, either attracted or not attracted to Dorothy, either super supportive or critical of her, who mm-hmm. can really just embrace the whole of her. It's like they like a certain thing or they really hate a certain thing, let's say something about mm-hmm. her. And mm-hmm. I, I just find her to be such a prophetic voice that it's like I have to kind of sit back and be like, I just need Dorothy to be Dorothy rather than me trying to just latch on to something I like about her or something that mm. I may be uncomfortable with with her because uh, the whole person of her in her mm. own complexities is a far greater person to encounter than just say holding on to certain things that she did that I really want to double down on. You know, and and I feel like, you know, even in the canonization process, I mean, there's people from different perspectives who want her canonized or not canonized, let's say, because they Mm -hmm. want to accentuate certain things and at the cost of mitigating other things, right? Is do you find that to be like really hard to deal with as someone who is related to her? (laughs) You know? Oh yeah, it's a big quandary. And, you know, I had to go through this whole process. I mean, I I joined the Dorothy Day Guild in 2006, and I was accused of having a conflict of interest. But then later, when I consulted with a priest, he said, it's not a conflict of interest for you, you know, being a family member engaging. It's a confluence of interests. Mm. So that helped me um, tremendously. And I've had to let go of these fears of, you know, Mother Teresa being raised up as a patron saint against abortion, when in fact what she was doing was hospice work, helping people to die, to leave Mm -hmm. this world with Mm -hmm. dignity. Mm -hmm. You know, the same things we do to Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy. Mm -hmm. There's always that, that fear and concern, but I've had to let go of it and to trust, you know, to trust that um, her personality, it grabs people. And that her words, her written and spoken words will carry the uh, information. And, you know, we do have people writing about her, misrepresenting her, and that's always happened and that that will continue to happen. The uh, Roman postulator who has been immersed in her writings and her life, he's like had an epiphany. He's, He's, you know, you can't study her 
you know, mm -hmm. honestly and, and um, devotedly study her without being hit over the head. Um, and my sister Kate right now is writing a beautiful series um, called The Provocations of Dorothy Day for the uh, London tablet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she has her conflicted relationship with the Catholic Church, but she has this very strong, beautiful relationship with her grandmother. Yeah. And her, her writings are uh, reflecting just such beauty and strength and love. And, you know, you you can't just walk away from what Dorothy makes you face. And you have to figure out, I've had to figure out, how am I to fit into this story um, with my own life and my own choices? You know, the application of my own uh, free will to follow the will of God. It's not about following our own will. Um, I think that Pope Francis has recently made some beautiful points about, okay, so we're devoted. We go to mass. We take in the body of Christ. What do we do after we do that? Mm -hmm, exactly. <laughs> you know, don't ignore. We did talk about you know this Eucharistic revival happening in Indianapolis in 2024, and the last time that was um, celebrated was in Philadelphia, and Dorothy was one of the speakers there. You know, what is this? Are we going to um, be evangelists and say you must come back to the church? Right. It's like, what does it mean to be a Catholic, and what does it mean to revive the Eucharist? So we're we're all faced with that dilemma. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to talk um, more about this whole Eucharistic revival thing because, I mean, I've had a very conflicted uh, understanding of it, to, to put it nicely, you know. Um, Millions of dollars is what this event yeah, is about. Big, big time. 75,000 people? Yeah, I was looking at the press release for it, and I was like, well, you can't say that we just won't give up on trying to recycle the same old ideas. I mean, you know, how often do we have like these event spirituality movements happening where we're going to get a lot of people out to do something? I said, at least the 1976 one had better speakers. I'm not war. trying to be critical. Yeah, I know. And and that was on the feast, I think, of the uh, Assumption, right? Wasn't it? Well, wasn't it like the bombing? It of was the anniversary of the bombing. Yeah. Of um, Hiroshima. And, and these, guys, these guys are just, you know, co-opting this history and these dates, you know, to support themselves in the antithesis of Jesus's teachings. Right. Right. No, I, I'm first off, I, I just appreciate your passion with all this, because I mean, this is mm -hmm. really these are things that we need to talk about. We can't just kind of gloss over them. But let's just before we get into that, because I, I want to get into that. I just want to learn a little bit more about how you came back to the church because uh, I mean clearly as we as we already can tell it's not easy even now <laughs> so how did you actually say okay you know I'm gonna take this uh, and make this my own and I'm saying yes to a relationship with Christ within the context of the Catholic Church how did that come about what was the process well you know the 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 um principles of the Catholic worker movement has have always stayed with me in all my choices and decisions in my life. Um, I just had to make the decision to be humble, to get mm. down on my knees. Mm. Um, you know, my, my conversion experience is something that I, I do need to write about to share and, and to convey to people. Um, and it's just a series of events and things where 
God sows seeds and we don't see the results until, you know, much later down the road. And, you know, I traveled around the world. I, I, I felt the presence of God in a Muslim country, you know, with the call to prayer. Mm -hmm. I never felt the presence of God in my own country, out, mm -hmm. you know, out in the public. It's not that I'm saying we all need to become a theocracy. It's just, you know, how do we treat each other? How do we interact with each other? And it was also out of desperation and, and anxiety about, you know, the, the way things were going. Um, my son joined the military. That was incredibly painful and scary for me. Mm. And I just found myself being pushed by all of these different um, factors, people entering into my life at the right moment. You know, I worked as an OT in the public schools. Um, the school was renting from the Catholic rectory i went to see the one of the special ed teachers her son was going to enter seminary and you know she was a catholic she said go see father um ernie and he he told me start praying the rosary and that's something that i did with dorothy and tamar mm -hmm. um, so there was just so many factors uh, i always understood the social justice aspect of, of dorothy and the catholic worker but it it had to come to me that the faith foundation was what I had to resolve uh, in my own mind and I and of course the church is corrupt um, but there was the Madonna and child you know there was Jesus baby Jesus in the arms of Mary how can I walk away from that sure. I don't know it's hard to explain conversions yeah now I think I remember you sharing with me before I mean um, Father Dan Berrigan played a, a significant role in, in coming back I mean could you share yeah. a little bit about your relationship with Dan? Because I mean, he's a personal hero of mine. And yeah. I, and of course I just didn't know him. Um, and I, I always like to hear a little bit about him from yeah. someone who knew him personally. I barely knew him also. I, mm -hmm. I came into his life when he was quite elderly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember um, hearing about him and maybe even seeing him as a kid around the Catholic worker. Um, but it took me a long time to, um, understand, you know, who he was and the role he played. I, I understood that Dorothy really loved Dan and Phil, you know, despite their actions that they took that were not necessarily the way she would approach things herself as a lay woman. Um, but it was in 2004 that things really began to rattle in my life. And I just opened, I just spontaneously opened up a um, letter correspondence with Dan. And what I was trying to do at that point in time was uh, to do interviews and maybe get, get published in the New York paper with these interviews. Hmm. And I asked Dan about doing an interview with him and he refused. Hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I had to speculate about why he refused, you know, and then the first time that I finally uh, saw him was 2006, after corresponding with him, I said, my son joined the military. And, mm. and Dan said, just pray, just pray. He had just lost Phil two years previously, and he was still grieving and deep grief. Mm. Um, so the first time I actually finally did see him was in June of 2006, where his 85th uh, birthday celebration was happening. Mm. Amy Goodman was emceeing it, yeah. Kurt Vonnegut, um, Ramsey Clark, Howard Zinn. There was wonderful people were there. Yeah. 
um, and he took his his sister-in-law Carol insisted on dragging me into the back room where all the you know superstars were hanging out <laughs> and he he took one look at me and my face and he turned his back on me hmm. he felt overwhelmed I don't know what it was I don't know why he never explained that to me and then my last visit to him was uh, at Mary Weigel with Father Moon, the Korean uh, priest who's right. been op opposing U.S. military forces in Korea um, since childhood. And, you know, I got to see Father Moon feed Father Berrigan mm. Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And so, you know, Dan was the basis. I didn't start attending the ALC retreats until 2007 or 8. I'm not remembering. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he was very, he was yet another little um, seed that was planted for me. Yeah, I was just talking to a friend of mine, um, Cyprian Consiglio. I don't know if you know that name, um, but he's a monk out in uh, New Kamaldoli in Big Sur. It was his, recently it was his <laughs> birthday. And uh, he knew Dan uh, on a certain level. He met him a few times, if anything. And uh, he was often taken in his later years by Dan's great uh, humility that um, mm, mm. like, even when he met him for the first time, he was just trying to say, you know, Cyprian was like, you know, it's, you know, Father Berrigan, uh, I really looked up to you, great hero of mine. And, and, and Phil had died by this point. And uh, he's, and the first thing he said was, you know, well, Phil was the real deal. You know, I'm just a, a facsimile, you know, <laughs> and uh <laughs> And he, and he meant it, like he said, there was like tears in his eyes. I mean, and, um, and if you do watch that documentary, Devout and Dangerous, uh, and you hear, especially through Frida's lens, you know, mm -hmm. Phil's daughter, mm -hmm. um, how he lived this life and, and just how, um, how consistent, you know, Phil yeah. was with everything. I mean, that, that's hard to find yeah. people like that, right? I mean. Yeah, he sacrificed. Um, he did, big time. I mean, mm -hmm. how much time he spent in jail. Mm -hmm. Now, that's something as when you when you came back to the church and and getting more involved with the Catholic worker, uh, did you anticipate yourself going to jail? <laughs> maybe um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that whole experience and why you went to jail. Because probably people are asking themselves, why would you have gone to jail? Well, my first jail experience was in 1979, 1980, before Dorothy had died, and that mm. was protesting Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant in New Hampshire. Wow. Um, with Dorothy? With Dar No, no, Dorothy wasn't there, was she? No, no, no. no. She okay. was, everybody was leaving Mary House to, you know, go protest up at Seabrook, and she was nostalgic about that. And all the young folks are going, wish I could go. And, you know, right, she, right, right. She was too old to do the, anything like that at that point in time. Yeah. Um, but she was very supportive of people. Um, and, you know, I did three months in county jail. My son was two years old. It was it was traumatic. It was hard. Um, it, it just so happened that the five, four other people that I did the action with were Catholics. Um, mm. So that was an, an interesting experience for me. And then, of course, I didn't do anything like that for the next 25 years. Mm -hmm. And then uh, my reintroduction, you know, first I had to return to my faith before I was prepared to return to the Catholic worker, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then in 2007, I kind of re-entered the community through uh, the witness against torture, uh, you know, protesting the torture and confinement of uh, Muslim prisoners in Guantanamo. 
and you know the use of torture has always haunted me as, as horrific not just as a healthcare provider but just as a human being mm -hmm. and so i don't know this business of um preparing oneself again i cannot say that i conscientiously prepared to be to do a plowshares action that's that's not how it happened that's not how it transpired right just really quick, can you tell us who the plowshares are, what the plowshare movement is? Because I'm sure people yeah. may not know. Well, Phil Berrigan is the founder of, the, yeah. of that movement, and it was to protest nuclear weapons, nuclear holocaust. Mm -hmm. started in 1980, the year Dorothy died. The first action was a few months before she died. There's all this controversy about Dorothy's granddaughter participating in a plowshares action with this question of... Um, secrecy and supposed destruction of property so i had to go through a whole discernment process with all of that there's been a hundred such actions and they're beautiful actions you know you go you go to the military base and you bring the body of christ with you, you we mm -hmm. call it a, a direct nonviolent sacramental act mm -hmm. and i was arrested at king's bay naval base in Ge south georgia april 4th 2018 mm -hmm. And, you know, the 50th anniversary of the state killing of Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of this just came together. Uh, the people that I was with, the timing, um, you know, God opens these doors and we have to choose whether we're going to step through them or not. Right. And up, up to the very last moment, I didn't know that I could do this or that I was prepared to do this or that I should or shouldn't do this. Um, but I just kept praying and we kept studying the daily readings and applying, you know, what Christ was speaking of in our own times. Um, right. So, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time in prison. And the other the other issue was the drones, the unmanned um, aerial drones used to kill. Mm -hmm. And I was arrested in Syracuse, New York and in dc for the guantanamo travesties sure sure so how what was the discernment process like every time we were about to engage in one of those actions i mean you mentioned it was like a communal type of discernment you know like mm -hmm. when you were praying over the readings and like what were the practices that were brought into discerning to do something like this because many people i'm sure would say like well what is the point of doing something like that you know you're not really changing anything right i mean how, how do you navigate feeling called to do something and then also just having a lot of naysayers always up against and then at the end of the day also realizing like yeah i guess nothing really did change other than maybe your own conversion to mm -hmm. the whole situation has gotten deeper Mm -hmm. But I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, what was the discernment process like? I believe that judge that we stood in front of was affected. Mm. I believe that the community that grew up in Brunswick, Georgia, after that action had some effect on many people. Mm. Um, you know, is Christ crucified on a cross, uh, an utter failure? Mm -hmm. um, that's what we go through uh, each time. Uh, with, with taking these uh, definitive actions. Um, I think, you know, not everybody's cut out to do a plowshares action, just, mm -hmm. you know. In fact, Dorothy had concerns about people being pushed into it who are not prepared for it. And they came out damaged. Um, so that does happen, that has happened. King said the same thing. He, he witnessed people being killed because of what he was 
you know, trying to move forward. Mm -hmm. He felt that immense responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know. I just found myself to be in a physical, uh, moral, emotional, spiritual place where I could consider um, walking onto this base, um, pouring blood, um, calling out the idolatry of uh, the nuclear gods. Um, Yes, it it is a revolution of one's own heart um, to participate in such an action within the beloved community. And I think every single one of those actions has had an impact Mm -hmm. on you know, the history of the United States militarization and the nuclear program, um, there was an impact with these uh, demonstrations and these protests, just like with the Vietnam War. So let's not underestimate what the impact may be, the ripple that may be uh, set off. And besides, we're not called to see the results. We're called to just do the work. And whatever grows out of that is, um, we're not to take um credit for it we we have to remain humble and and keep trying to do what we can do in our lifetime so given what you have felt called to do um and how you felt called to live your role within the body of christ so how do you navigate what we were talking about earlier the fact that there seems to have been this uh, impetus to have what is known as a eucharistic revival because a lot of people um, who were surveyed over a period of different times and and, in different contexts uh, doubt what is called the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So the Catholic bishops are now spending a lot of money, as you said, a lot of energy, resources, and having this big Eucharistic Revival Conference in Indianapolis. When is it, by the way? I, I I don't know when it is, actually. Um, It's 2024, uh, August. So the bishops want to blame the laity for um, (laughs) not feeling the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Well, it's the bishops and it's the priests who have failed us. I would be so arrogant as to say. Um, Well, you know, one one thing I I want to first talk about is like sometimes I just get a little um, frustrated with surveys like this because it's um, it's a little bit too black and white as far as I'm concerned. And that doesn't mean to say that, okay, uh, it's not black and white. I mean, I guess you can say there's something black and white. It's either Jesus present or not. But, mm. you know, my experience with people going to church, I don't think anyone's going to church and they don't think that what's happening is some in some way, shape or form, like a holy moment or a sacred moment of some sort. They may not have it all doctrinally, you know, uh, completely figured out, but I always feel if someone's going to church, I mean, my gosh, that's an act of grace already happening in the person's life. So let's just be happy about that. First off, right? Um, you know, but then the other thing too, is that, you know, the other thing that runs the risk is that we can really spend a lot of time and energy, whether we're going to convincing people or teaching people about the what is the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. But then the question is, well, but then what? Like, it's almost as like, well, what's the big deal about that? I mean, is it just like, this is like a really, really amazing moment. So it's like, we all have to show up and just like worship this amazing way that God reveals uh, his presence in the world. I mean, is because I don't think that the Eucharist was really meant to be an end point, but really a starting point. So 
if the high point is the celebration of mass, well, what's really the big deal about that? I mean, how is one transformed by that? I mean, right. it's almost like a rock concert. I mean, as, as you may know, I'm a humongous Bob Dylan fan, right? So yeah. I go to the Dylan concerts and I'm just like completely enamored by the whole experience, right? Now, I can't say after- Even though he mistreated Joan Baez? <laughs> That's for another podcast. <laughs> I Sorry. mean, like the, I mean, but like, when, when it's all said and done, I can say that's an awesome experience. I don't know exactly if I'm going to be doing something different now because of that great experience. I, other than just being thankful for it. Right. Um, yeah. But th I would think, you know, my whole, the reason why the Eucharist has been so transformative in my own life is just that like, when you're able to see that God reveals his love in such a simplistic ordinary conventional way mm. uh, through a piece of bread it breaks open this whole perspective of looking at the world sacramentally like everything is more than it appears to be at this point yes. and that especially the person in front of me i mean they may appear one way and they may be saying things and doing things that i find repulsive or offensive or horrible but i don't just stop there because i know there's something more to this person their breath their heartbeat reveals the living real presence of God in my midst. And what role am I doing to affirm that uh, rather than just kind of dismissing it because I don't like what I'm seeing up front, you know, I mean, like that is the transformative effect of the Eucharist for me. It's like, Oh, I should never just take things at surface level. I should never just take things as simple bread and wine. There's something more. And, yeah. and quite frankly, I don't hear us talking about that when we're talking about Eucharistic revival. So I know I've said a lot, <laughs> but maybe maybe you can just yeah. tell me like how you're negotiating through all these things right now, you know? Yeah, well, what what is the last thing that is said to us after, you know, we say, thanks be to God, or before we say, thanks be to God, the priest says, go forth. Um, the Mass is on that, go, uh, go forth to love and serve the Lord. To love and serve the yes, Lord, right? Yes, right, go yeah. forth to love and serve the Lord. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? How do we practice that? How do we take the body of Christ within ourselves and, you know, relive it um, to, to, if you want to use the word to evangelize, you know, to, to be an example to others about how we are um, to live as disciples of Christ. And, you know, Dorothy as a child recognized that, they everybody is all sweet and um devout on a sunday and then on a monday they're cursing out their neighbors right um so yes and i think with the practice of the works of mercy in the houses of hospitality is that person who comes through the door who is in wretched conditions that person is christ right and, and if that's not the heart of an intense uh, revolution um, an example of what being a Christian translates into, um, then we don't have any stronger um, definition or example of that other than this hospitality work. Um, you know, our, our culture, our society blames these victims, writes them off as useless, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and yet we are there to wash their feet. Um, that's quite a revolutionary idea. Yeah, and and how do you do it, Martha? Because that that's the thing that I'm always struggling with. Like you know, like I don't know that I do it or yeah. do it well enough or do it enough. Or... I mean, like I'm I'm here in San Francisco and I live in the Tenderloin. It's perhaps the 
the place where there's the most visible homelessness, visible drug usage, mm -hmm. visible mental illness, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I know from the bottom of my heart when I'm passing someone, like, I know that's Jesus Christ. And I know that I'm really not any different than this person. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't know their past, what landed them here, but I know that we both were brought into this world in the same way and that we're given life to the, in the same way at mm -hmm. this moment in time. So therefore there is really nothing separating me from that other person. We are all one in mm -hmm. the body of Christ. But mm -hmm. then I'm still at a loss to feel like, well, what is my role as say one member that is trying to uh, aid or help another? I mean, usually I'm thinking to myself, how do I need to be converted by this person? Like what, mm -hmm. what more do I need to understand about my own shortcomings that this person who may be all like drugged out could mm -hmm. be revealing to me? I mean, God's presence works through that person to convert me. It's not just about me trying to help them. I mean, like, how is this person actually helping oh. me? Yeah. But when you think about like these, these situations really require so much that we can't do like i mean it's very difficult to to work with someone who's high or or going through suffering through some type of mental doubt of some sort it's I mean, the material it's the material level yeah what, what, what yeah. can we do for them on the material level yeah and, you know they don't just simply come to us because they want the soup and the sandwich or the shower they also want to be acknowledged as human beings and to share, to have company. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in the realm of occupational therapy, we're trained in what's called the therapeutic use of self. And I think as Catholics, that's what we're called to do. Um, you know, every everyone in our culture is told, you know, you've got to get um, yourself uh, as much as you can on the material level. I think the the radicalness of uh, Peter and Dorothy is saying, give away what you have materially and God will give you more to give away. It's a never ending uh, possibility of redistribution. And if, right. and, if, and if we're not willing to do that on the physical material level, then how are we going to do it on a spiritual level? I don't know. Well, I mean, one thing I've always been inspired with with Peter Marin is his, uh, and I get this from from Dorothy because she talks so much about him, was his ability to place limits upon himself. Like uh, there's this one great talk where she she was always taken by how there was like a celebration. I guess that they had all these cakes, which, as you know, is in, in the Catholic worker movement, you eat pretty well on a feast day because everyone brings something, or you know, or they just mm -hmm grab something that people were about to throw out, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, and everyone's like, Peter, have another piece of cake because there's so much cake. And he's like, no, I don't need one. One, one was enough. I mean, and yeah, everyone else is like, hey, it's, it's, it's a party. Let's, let's go to it. But like a self-imposed limit. I mean, we live in a type of world where there are no limits. I mean, we, we, have, we have basically said that, you know, the goal is to just get as much money, let's say, as you possibly want. I mean, no yeah. limit. There's never a moment saying, I have enough money now. I don't need to get more. I mean, that's not even like an, a virtuous way of looking at things. It's like you should just keep on getting more. So when you have a, a society 
that values unrestricted, unlimited amounts of obtaining wealth or material things, mm-hmm. well, naturally, you're going to be taking things away from other people in that process. I mean, you can't think that we're not connected that way. I mean, right. Right. you have to share. So, but when you say that to people, they're like, well, I have every right to get what I want. I earn this. I earn this. Yeah. I mean, how, like, how do you navigate through that? Because I clearly know I have to constantly keep myself in check. I'm like, do I really need this? Or right. or, or, is my, or is this something that I feel like I'm getting for some type of ego trip? Or is it making me feel like I'm, I'm dealing with insecurity and this will make me feel more secure? I mean, like, there needs to be like a little bit of discernment in everything that we purchase, like, do I really need this? Yeah. Do I really need to yeah. get this uh, another bottle of water, which I'm going to throw out, you know, and once I'm done well, drinking it, you know? The planet is collapsing because of infinite consumption in a finite world. I mean, I like what Ched Myers has spoken, written about regarding um, Sabbath economics. You know, mm. God, God has given us enough Mm-hmm. And we must learn how to share and take only what we need. And then capitalism turns that on its head and, and says, there's a shortage mm-hmm. and get as much as you can for yourself and your friends and your family. Um, so that's just a recipe for, you know, the goods not being distributed properly and shared properly. And one thing that this culture reminds me of is, you know, during the Roman Empire, what did they do? They would like have orgies and gorge and, and, you know, overeat and then vomit so they could go eat some more. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Um, And right now we have this great adoration for the elite, the rich, the wealthy class, and we all want to be like them. And, you know, to be Christian is the opposite of that, you know, to to race to the bottom. Right. Well, you know, and you do see, parts of society that seem to be trying to do the antithesis of that there's like this minimalism type of movement and like people wanting to buy buy small houses and other things like that um but the long-term success of those things i don't know um if they're really going to be able to turn the 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 side of things because i think it really is and this is what to get back to dorothy and what peter i mean they were so radically dependent they knew that that God in some way was going to give them what they need when they needed it, that it wasn't even, it wasn't even so much about organizing your life a certain way. It was about just radical dependence to know Mm -hmm. that I don't have to really do a lot in order to be able to live a a full life. I mean, would you say that Dorothy, like when you knew her and it was towards the end of her life, I mean, was she joyful? Was she at peace? Like, how would you, categorize that and and be honest if you can i mean Mm. because i mean i've seen her room i saw the room that she died in right i mean it's a very simple place Mm -hmm. um surrounded by people with tremendous suffering but you know also lots of love in the in the midst of all that i mean what what how do you think dorothy at the end of the day looked back on her very storied life and um how does she feel failure (laughs) Mm. i know Mm. that that has been mentioned that yeah the world is the same despite mm-hmm. all of these efforts um at, at, at redistributing the goods um, a revolution of the heart you know begin to understand what the gospel teachings look like and and what they require mm-hmm. 
but I find my memories of both my mother and my grandmother was one of just deep, deep, um, quiet um, contentment, um, just appreciation for the simplest, most beautiful things in life. And, you know, that being each other, family, uh, nature, the beauty of nature, uh, living on this earth, um, and an appreciation for for the human accomplishments that do uh, celebrate, you know, great works of art, great music. Um, Dorothy appreciated and understood that those are all gifts from God as well. And we don't have to be uh, frugal in our enjoyment and appreciation of what, what's, what God has given us. And also let's not forget the term precarity, you know, living, living precariously uh depending on each other's love and generosity and uh trusting that god does provide if we love one another like we are to love god yeah. um, it's a simple it's a simple lesson but it's not easy to uh, practice and materialism just really leeches in from all sides the misuse of you know the goods of the world that we do need to have available to us the hoarding it's all a form of idolatry and neither of them neither of them had any speck of that kind of attachment to stuff well that's tremendous grace right and i think it's a grace that's open to all of us to do that i you know i i really appreciate this time that you spent here talking about all these different things um, maybe just as a way to conclude, I mean, for yourself personally, how do you, what do you do in order to not get sucked in, so to speak, to the, if you want to say the materialistic, capitalistic, unrestricted, unlimited type of uh, attainment of goods, wealth that is so highly valued in today's culture? Are there certain like practices that you have incorporated? in order to, to remind you of that or to, to help you not get yeah go to go to prison <laughs> and that's 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 a that's a great stripping down um yeah, yeah i don't know I, I struggle with it daily i live in a beautiful place in vermont um when i go down to mary house it feels chaotic and bleak and i am kind of a materialistic person i mean i do like beauty and i do like comfort um, but it's very easy, I think, to discern when it's over the top, for goodness sake, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I love that Buddhist saying that, you know, human desires are unsatiable. Um, mm. The more we get, the more we want. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's, you know, gratitude and appreciation of, of what we have and uh, recognition that we're not going to be sustained or fulfilled through uh, material desires or ownership of too much stuff. And, you know, we live in a culture that's completely gluttonous. I mean, there's so much waste. Uh, yeah. Mary, Mary House gets all kinds of do donations to redistribute the goods. Um, so I don't know, it's not easy, but it's not hard. It's a daily practice. And one way to keep yourself in check is to just see how your own body literally feels i mean our eating practices are just so out of whack um in our 
society and culture, the way we raise food. Um, you know, we, we here in Vermont, we raise most of our food and that's an incredible blessing. It's, it's hard work, but it's um, the best way to sustain oneself and to um, subvert the capitalist system. Sure. You know, drop out, stop consuming so much. Yeah. Well, Martha, thank you so much for spending time with here, with me here and mm -hmm. uh, just giving a little bit of a personal window into Dorothy and to Peter and a little bit of your own conversion story and also just giving us some hope to know that, uh, you know, we actually can make a difference one small step at a mm -hmm. time with one mm -hmm. small action at a time, which really um, is the little way that Dorothy even writes about um, in, in model of, of Teresa Lassoux. So, And God um, feels our happiness god feels our joy that's what god wants to receive from us you know yeah. not unhappiness and discontent and unsatisfied lives you know have joyful lives that's that's what it's all about Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Attentive Heart Podcast. We hope that you were able to find it helpful in your spiritual journey and practice. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Sunday to Sunday Productions and The Witness Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and share it with friends. <laughs>